Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, however you might be listening, welcome to episode 76 of What's Up Tuscany, the only English language podcast made by real Tuscans and dedicated to anyone around the world that loves and cherishes our amazing land. Every Friday we do our best to kickstart your weekend the right way by bringing you with us as we venture into the corners of Tuscany that will never be on the front page of a magazine. We do that in a variety of ways, by telling the tales and legends of this land, the stories of the people that made this region. Sometimes we also talk about food, wine, curiosities, we aim to be your go-to place for everything Tuscany. If you love Italy, its art, culture, history, stick around, you definitely won't be disappointed. In order to prepare this week's episode, the team of What's Up Tuscany has decided to do something very unusual for us, get out of the studio and start looking around. The decision to stay indoors and find stuff to say about Tuscany was only partly justified by the fact that we're a bunch of bookworms. You must have heard about a certain disease that has brought the world to a standstill. Now that we are more or less allowed to step outside and enjoy the weather, even in lockdown happy Italy, we made a little experiment. In order to prove that our amazing region is so full of beautiful things to see, we went to one of the ugliest towns in the lower Valdarno, a place that even the most enthusiastic tour guide could make beautiful. If you have been listening for a while, you know that we have been saying since forever that Tuscany has so many beautiful things to see that it would take a lifetime to see them all. Now, this bold statement always came with some strings attached. We never said that there aren't places around here that are just plain ugly or at least very forgettable. My hometown, for example, is definitely nothing to write home about. Town pride can only do so much, especially when you're less than one hour away from Florence, Luca or Siena. Despite this, we just wanted to prove that even the dullest of Tuscan towns has a lot to offer, you just need to know where to look. So last Sunday afternoon we took advantage of the gorgeous weather and accepted the invitation of a couple of local volunteer groups, apparently hell-bent on showing everyone what they were missing right next door. We all have been around this kind of people, absolutely in love with their town and ready to go well above and beyond what's reasonable to prove their right. An afternoon with them usually looks like a recipe for disaster or absolute boredom. I'm happy to report, after spending three and a half hours with that lot of very nice people, I wasn't bored at all. Actually, I was flabbergasted when I realized that the same town I had been maligning for most of my life had a variety of great things that I would have never dreamed of. That's Tuscany in a nutshell. Not even someone born five miles away knows what he's been missing. That's why this week's episode of What's Up Tuscany will be quite different. We will prove once and for all that our region is beautiful literally everywhere, even a town that your friendly neighborhood host had always considered downright awful. Play the surprises as usual, so make sure you stick around until the end. You won't regret it. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. 
So the first WhatsApp Tuscany field trip started last Sunday afternoon and brought yours truly just a few miles from my rather dull hometown of Pontedera to another town I know pretty well and that is even less appealing to the eye, Kashina. This town was for centuries a stronghold of the Pisan Republic, defended by mighty walls and fought over obsessively by the powers of Florence and Lucca, as most of the Arno Valley was. The place found its way to the history books for a couple of massive battles that took place outside the walls, the most famous of which was the triumph for Florence and was preserved for posterity in a famous fresco by the ultimate all-rounder of art, science and everything else, Leonardo da Vinci. Aside from this, the place was never particularly impressive or beautiful. It was your regular former castle on the plain, with the typical grid of streets downtown that seemed taken from your Roman army regulations and nothing much else. The mighty walls of the past have been taken down centuries ago, but you can still recognize their presence if you know where to look. On the main streets of the town there are two strips of ancient bricks in the pavement that indicate where the walls used to be. Now, I'm not sure if they got the idea from the Indianapolis racetrack with its legendary brickyard or if it's the other way around, but it surely is quite a coincidence. After parking my car I was surprised to find out that the main street, a pedestrian zone for at least 20 years, was busier than you'd expect on a 2pm on a Sunday. Apparently, the local administration had convinced a bunch of different food trucks to show up and offer their goods to the population at some discount. You had a very nice selection of stuff from Sicilian rice balls with meat, the famous arancine, to some sort of upscale hamburger made with a special kind of meat that is typical of Piedmont. There was also a place that sold paella, not sure which kind, pretty important distinction considering that every Spanish town says that their version is the only original one. Having already had my lunch I had to be satisfied with just smelling the food, which was not nearly as nice as chowing down with gusto on some of those delicacies. The loudspeakers were blasting pretty loudly some of the 80s greatest hits from your ACDC to Van Halen, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, all stuff that made me at the same time very happy and very aware of the fact that I'm way older than I would like to admit. At 3pm we were supposed to meet in front of the town clock tower. I showed up 15 minutes earlier as always, preparing myself for the usual long wait. If you are in Italy and on time, expect to wait a lot for everyone to show up. Try not to tap your foot nervously when they show up, they might get offended too. Some people were already there, a couple of senior citizens that were definitely from here, a couple of younger people that were most definitely not from here, as can be attested by their quite thick German accent. Other people joined the group including the two organizers of the walk, representatives respectively of the Kashinas Workers' Society and the Compagnia di Calci, a group of history enthusiasts that volunteers to maintain in good shape many landmarks of the area, including the Veruca Fortress, the one that we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, the famous Eye of Pisa. I wasn't expecting to see a crowd of people waiting, but the turnout wasn't definitely large, maybe 15 people. After chatting amiably for a few minutes, we started walking down the main street. I had no idea what they had in mind and was positively nonplussed about the whole thing. I mean, I have worked for years in Kashina, back when I was the press officer for a local political party, my office was in the town hall, right there, on the main street. I knew the town pretty well and was fully aware that it was as ugly as they come. Trust me, a real stinker of a small town. Halfway on the main street, we turned left 
which brought me to a place I had never visited before. Oh, so there was a church there? Really? What about that blocky building before the square? A very bland brick place with an old door, something that reminded me of a barn conversion up on the right side of the channel. Now that I was thinking about it, maybe I had been there before, but that door was never open. We stopped there for a bit, waiting for someone, apparently. The vicar showed up, a rather young-looking vicar too, not exactly a common sight these days. When he opened the door, even the people from town were surprised. They had no idea that just next to the church there was another chapel. That building had been there for centuries, but they didn't know that it was a church as well, funded many, many years ago by a charitable group next door whose job had always been to assist those in need. When I stepped inside, I was as surprised as everyone else. The interior was nowhere near as anonymous as the exterior. It was all white marble, baroque style, with some nice paintings on the wall and on the ceiling, very pleasing to look at, very clean, thanks to the help of some volunteers. The chapel was dominated by a baptismal font with a pretty old and beautiful sculpture on top. I listened as the vicar explained how this ancient oratory was only open to celebrate baptisms in town. Apparently, the town of Kashina has too many churches and not enough faithful, a problem that is all too common all over Italy. Looking around, I realized that everyone was just as surprised as I was. I mean, this is not as beautiful or impressive as St. Peter's Cathedral, but it's pretty enough to be worth at least a stop on your way from the airport in Pisa to Florence. Yet no one knows the chapel is there, not even the locals. We were all there, snapping pictures with our smartphones, well aware that we wouldn't be able to see the interior of this remarkable chapel for God only knows how long. Maddening as it may look, this is the way the beautiful things in Tuscany are treated every single day. They're never seen as a massive bonus for the town, something that should be showcased, promoted as it deserves, but a nuisance, stuff that we will all do well without. I was a bit sad when I stepped outside of the chapel. It had been there for all this time and I had absolutely no idea. Guess that's the way things go around here. The Vicar of Kashina brought us along to visit the church next door, dedicated to St. Mary of the Assumption, just like the big one in Pisa, next to the Leaning Tower. A coincidence? Maybe, but let's say that people back then didn't have a lot of fantasy when it came to naming their churches. If you were under the boot of Florence, chances are he was dedicated to St. John the Baptist. If you were lucky enough to be under the rule of the Merchant Republic of Pisa, you chose St. Mary. Yes, I am biased. What are you going to do about it? I'm from Tuscany. We're pretty big into these things. Just outside on the square, you can have a look at the pretty tall bell tower. Very old and impacted in a rather negative way by a restoration attempt made a few decades ago. As the stability of the building was at risk, they just decided to redo the top part and pour a whole lot of concrete there, which looks awful. It may have kept the tower from collapsing, but it's really ugly. At least it doesn't lean over like its sister in Pisa, right? You win some, you lose some, apparently. The guide from the Compagnia di Calci was big into historic factoids. Most of them were pretty forgettable, so much that my usual messy self didn't even write them down, but some have stuck with me, which allows me to report them to you, my dear listeners. The bell tower wasn't built this tall just to brag about it with the neighbors, nothing like that, there was a very specific reason, a military one. The tower was part of the rapid communication network that crisscrossed the territory of the Republic, allowing messages to be relayed almost in real time across the land, 
it had to be built tall as it had to be seen from the nearby castle of Vicopisano, up the Monte Pisano and from the next castle in the chain, Pontedera, a few miles away to the east. The church itself would probably deserve its own episode, but we don't have time to do that right now. It's old, around the 11th century, built clearly following the Pisan Romanesque canon with its typical alternating white stones with black stones. Now, if you looked at the picture in the podcast thumbnail, you noticed that the stones in Kashina aren't exactly black but beige, light brown. Why is it so? Because carrying big stones up and down the unpaved road of the time was both difficult and expensive. You build your stuff with what you had lying around most of the time. In Pisa, they had the budget to get choosy and choose only the prettier stones, importing stuff from all over the Mediterranean to make the cathedral spectacular. In a smaller castle like Kashina, they didn't have that luxury, so they had to make do with what they had available. The church is still interesting, even if it doesn't have all the quirks of the more famous ones in Pisa, Lucca and Florence. There is one similarity though. A few episodes ago I told you the story of the architectural design choice that allowed a ray of light to enter the Pisa Cathedral at midday of March the 25th and hit a marble egg near the altar to symbolize the announcement of the angel to Mary. In Kashina, they didn't have the money and talent to come up with something so precise and spectacular, but they still wanted to join the party. How did they do that? In a much simpler and elegant way. They pointed on the pavement, the place where the sunlight hit on that very specific moment and placed a bronze plaque to remind everyone. Very conveniently, they also built a small altar there where they could perform the ceremonies of that very special day, the first day of the new year. We walked a bit in the road of downtown, positively empty as it usually happens on a Sunday afternoon, when most people are still trying to recover after eating way too much on their lunch with the family. You know how Italian mamas are. We got back to the main road and went down it, stopping at a place that I must have seen a thousand times on my way to the town hall in the past. I had noticed a tourist information plaque there with its usual yellow color and outdated lettering. St. John Oratory, it read, 14th century, nothing more. The place was never open, as far as I could remember, with the entrance blocked by a generic cast iron fence that didn't do much to entice people to get in. Nothing remarkable about it, which is why I always gave it no more than a passing glance. Boy, was I wrong. The vicar joined us again and opened the door, leading us into a compact space that was completely filled with very old and beautiful frescoes. The guy defined this oratory as a little jewel, which is something of an understatement. I'm not the greatest art expert around, not by a mile, but the paintings were really well made despite being in a rather sorry state of conservation. The guide explained that the author of these frescoes was a master of the time, Martino di Bartolomeo, who had been brought over from Siena to decorate this special place. Getting famous people to work on a very small space next to the walls of a minor castle in the lower Valdarno didn't happen every day. There must be something special about this little chapel. You're absolutely right, this was nothing more than a status symbol, a very expensive way to show off your wealth and brag about it with your friends without being accused of being a twat. Apparently, the oratory had been financed by a very wealthy and pious Cascina man, Bartolo Palmieri. After making a killing bringing the goods from the Pisa harbour all the way to Florence and beyond, he wanted to give back something to the community and make sure that his name wouldn't be forgotten anytime soon. 
The crest of the Palmieri family is clearly visible inside the chapel, together with the image of the man himself knelt down in adoration of one of the apostles. I wondered why Mr. Palmieri chose to have an entire building made in his name rather than financing an addition to some existing church, as it usually happened back then. I mean, it would have been a lot simpler and way cheaper too. Apparently he had other needs, needs that could only be met with a new building. You know, Bartolo Palmieri was not just rich, he was also a knight. Yes, you heard that right, a real knight, shiny armor and horse and the rest. Rather than spending his life going from tournament to tournament or risking his own life on the battleground, he chose a more religious way to fulfill his knightly duties. He became a part of one of the most prestigious orders of the time, the Knights Hospitaliers of St. John of Jerusalem. Nowadays they are better known as the Knights of Malta, considered that they ruled over the island for almost three centuries, but the monastic military order is one of the oldest around, founded back in the year 605 to provide assistance to the pilgrims heading to the Holy Land after it was conquered by the Arab armies. The knights needed a place to meet and perform their rites away from the eyes of the population, which made the gift of Serpa Palmieri very convenient indeed. The palace next door, at the time, was one of the most important commanderies of the order, with knights living there all the time, while conducting their businesses or travelling towards Rome. On the left wall there was also a window, a place that linked the chapel to the palace directly so that the knights that had sworn an oath to solitude could still attend the mass. Now it's been closed with bricks, but it's still clearly recognizable. The chapel is really beautiful, but would most definitely need a major restoration effort. Most of the frescoes have been covered with a coat of plaster, as it has happened so many times in the past with works of art not specifically protected by the art institutions. People either didn't know any better or just wanted to get things done without much of a fuss. How could they know that paintings such as these are exceedingly rare? Actually, the frescoes in Kashina are one of the very few examples of medieval paintings anywhere in Western Tuscany. To be honest, it's quite remarkable that they survived as they are to our time. After all monastic quarters were abolished by the Grand Dukes of Tuscany, the place fell into complete disrepair and was used for centuries as a place where logs were stored. Who cared about art when you had businesses to run and not enough space for new warehouses? Businesses pay taxes, art didn't. Some say that this actually was a blessing in disguise, as the wood absorbed most of the humidity around, allowing the delicate frescoes to survive better to the injuries of time. I left the chapel a bit bewildered. I had been there, walking in front of the building countless times in the past, without ever having the faintest idea of the beauty that was hidden behind that unassuming door. That's Tuscany. Blink and you'll miss it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We kept on walking down Main Street, listening to our very knowledgeable and enthusiastic guides that listed factoid after factoid, not in an obnoxious way, but it was still a lot to process. 
I remember a couple of things, such as the very odd reason why the town lost its two main gates, the ones that had defended it for centuries from enemy armies. It happened back at the end of the 1800s when the local administrations thought that the main railway line that linked the coast with Florence wasn't nearly enough to cope with the traffic. They chose to build a tramway, a light railway that would have needed a lot less infrastructure and could coexist with the carts and carriages on the main road along the river. This tramway operated for a few decades from Pontedera to the seaside resorts of Marina di Pisa and Tirrenia, the only sea most of us in the lower Vardarno knew about. There was a problem though, the medieval gateways were too narrow to accommodate the engines and carriages of the tram. What to do? Look for an alternative route, one that gets around the ancient castle, that would have been possible but expensive and not very convenient. People that wanted to get on the tram were downtown, if they had to walk too much they would just prefer to use the train, whose station was not too far away. So the ancient gates had to go, they were in the way of progress, and go they did without anyone caring much about them. Same happened with parts of the world still standing after the final conquest by Florence in the 16th century. There were a few around, but only because they are incorporated into new buildings. You can still see the holes from which the archers and arquebusiers used to shoot at the enemies, but the walkways and the battlements are gone forever. After looking at the old gate that still marks the place of an ancient hospital, maintained for centuries by a local charity and closed just a few decades ago, we went from an old tower house to some of the original houses of the city, back when it was still a castle. Low ceilings, small doors, they look a bit cramped as everything was back in the middle ages. I guess people weren't very tall. There aren't a lot of these houses around, most of them were smashed to pieces by the heavy aerial bombardments of the Second World War, which pretty much obliterated most of the towns that didn't have major artistic landmarks around. Right when I thought the visit was about to end, we took a detour and stopped halfway on one of the many anonymous roads next to Main Street. Right now, the place looks like a ghost town, but up until not very long ago, this road was bustling with activity. Every door had a small laboratory behind it, cramped places where woodworking masters spend their long days crafting all sorts of furniture. This was the trade that kept the city going when the harbour in Pisa was closed and most goods were transported on different routes. Cascina became the capital of carpenters, the place where building beautiful furniture became almost ubiquitous. Now most of the small workshops have closed forever, destroyed by foreign competition, changing fashions and the fact that people do not look anymore for furniture that lasts a lifetime. The stuff made in Cascina was very elaborate, made of solid wood and pretty expensive. That was okay with people until a few decades ago. You had to buy a living room only once, so you had to buy quality stuff, timeless, that wouldn't look completely outdated after a few years. When people started to see furniture as disposable, stuff that you change regularly to keep up with the times, the writing was on the wall. Many of these small workshops closed without anyone noticing when the masters decided they had enough to spend their days slaving at their tools surrounded by sawdust. Young people didn't want to have anything to do with hard work, so the centuries-old trade pretty much died of natural death. Some of these masters didn't go quietly into the night, no siree, they went out in style with a big bang. The shop of Enrico Bertini is still the way he left it a few years ago, when he finally went to meet his maker. Not only has this family 
touched nothing, but they also made sure that people could visit the place and see what had filled his time since he retired. You see, after spending a lifetime making rocking chairs and selling them to fancy shops all over Europe, he wanted to express his art in a different way, something that was both fun and special. People in Kashina knew him as Barege. Everyone back then had a nickname, especially because surnames around here are almost all the same. Rather than asking constantly who is your father, much better to have a unique nickname so that people knew immediately who they were talking about. Barege was very well known in town. He was a true virtuoso of the lathe. He could do almost anything with it and a piece of wood. While making rocking chairs paid the bills, he used his spare time to make something for his nephews, who sometimes tagged along in the workshop, especially in the summer vacations. After one of them asked him for something special, he started creating stuff for them, elaborate things that he had probably seen in the book. He started out with some oriental-looking wind chimes, then progressed to replicas of eastern pagodas, ending up with some massive, remarkably detailed castles, completely made of wood. I have snapped many pictures of these masterworks, wondering why they are still sitting there, in a small workshop on an empty road, rather than in a museum. The detail and the craftsmanship behind them are just astounding. Looking back at the pictures, they just look so real, almost like they're the real thing. Like most of the woodmasters in Kashina, Barege has had his uh, training alternating school and work as it was customary. It wasn't just because people couldn't afford to have their kids just go to school, it was considered the proper way to train a carpenter. In the day you perfected your skill at work, in the evening you got the formal education from qualified teachers. They loved wood because it's the easiest material to mold into what you want, but for them it was all about the art, expressing themselves. They were all artists at art, you can clearly see it in their work. His nephew, Barbara, is determined to keep the place open so that people can see what their grandfather was really capable of. It was a remarkable experience, one that I would have never even dreamed possible. Who knew that such things were hidden in a side road in the dullest town I know? Tuscany is always full of surprises. We had been walking for almost three hours, so I was more than ready to head home, but the organizers had left the best for last we headed for another small alley, another anonymous house. The only thing noticeable was a sign outside that read Società Operaia di Cascina, as in Workers' Society. The organization has been around for almost two centuries, helping workers to get education, medical care and assistance, especially before the introduction of the welfare state in the first half of the 20th century. We climbed the stairs, got into a small apartment and were astounded when we found it absolutely full of historical things. Seriously, the place is packed with stuff. Everywhere you look, there is something interesting. From a 1920s billboard to a historic flag, an ancient typewriter, books, the walls are almost completely covered with artistic stuff. After recovering from the shock, we got to hear that until a couple of years ago, this place was completely different. The workers' society was almost dead and the historic seat was just used as a storage space with tons of stuff lying around just waiting for a spark to turn history into ashes. The new energetic and young president, Mary Gronki, didn't wait for someone to come up with a clever plan to resurrect the ancient institution. She just rolled up her sleeve, convinced a few people to join her and just started getting things in order. 
Considering where she started from, the results are absolutely astounding. There is way too much stuff crammed in those few rooms on two levels of the historic building, but it makes sense. There is some reasoning behind what is now a pretty small but very interesting museum. Authorities are slowly recognizing the work of Mary and her friends. A museum has recently won an award of the Association of Small Museums of Italy and was featured in an episode of a national TV show dedicated to the beautiful corners of our country. We spent more than an hour there, but we left the place fully aware that we had only scratched the surface, that there was so much more to see. Walking there, looking at the drawings of the apprentices of a hundred years ago, boys that were probably only 12, 13 years old, makes you wonder where the world is coming to. The drawings are amazing, such as the mouldings of the delicate details that would have been used in their furniture back in the workshop. To think that they just did that stuff while they were training is really something. In one of the rooms there is a massive cabinet made of solid wood, very bulky and very heavy. The decorations are outstanding, finely carved, one of a kind, the results of hundreds of hours of work by people that definitely knew what they were doing. Mary told us that in order to bring the cabinet here, they had to come up with some very clever solution. She told us that back when it was made in the early 1900s, when you had to make something this precious and large, people preferred to build it right where it was supposed to stay, in the house of the guy that bought it. No one even thought about how to move it to somewhere else. Why would you do that? It was something built to specifications, to fulfill a very real need. Why should you ever move it? Aside from this remarkable piece of furniture, there is so much more in these rooms. You have a small place where you have all sorts of work instruments donated by the woodmasters once they retire. There is another room where you can find an archive of photos, pieces of life of the organization in many decades depicting all the social events, the exhibitions, the good, the bad, the ordinary and the not so ordinary. There is the first public library of Kashina, the only place where working class people could learn something maybe look for inspiration for their next piece of furniture in an art book. The Workers' Society used to have a handcart that travelled in the villages of the countryside to offer books to regular workers that didn't have the time to go to town. The books there are just a fraction of what has been donated to them in the years. They have many more in a warehouse, stuff that would need to be sorted and presented in a more cohesive manner. Of the many things that I have learned in this museum, allow me to highlight one more. The link between wood carving and art was so strong that it was indeed thanks to the training efforts spearheaded by the Workers' Society that Kashina had a high school entirely dedicated to the arts. The Liceo Artistico Franco Russoli, celebrated last September, is 150th anniversary and has become one of the leading institutions in the region when it comes to training future artists. While the furniture industry is nowhere near as rich or powerful as it was just a few decades ago, many around here hope that some of the pupils of this prestigious school will follow in their footsteps. It would take a lot more than a few enthusiastic students to revive this industry, which has somehow survived in the nearby towns of Perignano and Ponsacco, but no one really knows what the future holds for all of us. Maybe the crisis we're going through will make it more complicated to have stuff made at the other side of the world. Maybe buying a piece of furniture made in China with wood from Brazil and designed in Italy will become too complicated and expensive. Who knows, maybe Kashina will once again be the city of furniture, as you can still read in the road sign at the town entrance. 
We will talk more about the fascinating history of the industry and the town in a future episode as we plan to talk with someone who is very knowledgeable and was around when things were happening, so stay tuned. We will just end up by saying that this tiny museum, made from scratch by enthusiastic and very passionate young people, deserves a lot more exposure than what it gets now. If you happen to be around here in the future, make sure to leave an hour or two to go and see what it's all about. Considering the energy of Mary and her friends, God only knows what they will have come up with then. That was all for this week, we really hope that you liked this episode, one that is both very different and much more challenging than our usual fare. The tour that we have joined isn't a regular event, but the organizers assured me that it's going to happen again in the coming weeks and months. You will find the links to both groups in the description, check them out if you're interested, they're really great people that love Tuscany almost as much as we do. Let us know if this sort of deep dive into the hidden corners of our amazing region is something that you would like more of. If you'd rather have us talk about something else, don't keep it to yourself, speak up! Drop us a message on our social media accounts or an email. Our address is podcast at larno.it. That is podcast at larno.it. Any feedback is greatly appreciated. If it's not the first time you come around here, please take a minute to leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. The best way for people to know that this tiny little podcast has something to offer is for people like you to make everyone know that we're doing something right. Anything you can do to help would be amazing. Thanks in advance. I'm still your friendly neighborhood host, Luca Bocci. If you wish so, I will see you next Friday for another episode of What's Up Tuscany, the only English language podcast made by real Tuscans and dedicated to anyone that loves Italy, its art, culture, food and history. Thanks for getting to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening and goodbye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.